0: Our reading from God's holy word comes from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone that had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, now as we spend a few minutes attending to this, your word, we pray that you would attend to us by the Spirit. Would you help us to hear, to truly mark and learn and even inwardly digest this marvelous announcement, this report from your servant Mark about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. O Christ, would you now, by the Spirit, meet with us here in this text? And would we, through the eye of faith, see the beauty of you, O risen Christ, and understand the significance of what it is that you've accomplished, both for the world. And for our lives personally, would you now open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from this your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. It really has been a treat to look at these uh, passion narratives at the end of the gospel of Mark outside the context of what is our normal rehearsing of these truths which would be you know during the month of March or or April during the the Lenten season leading up to uh, Easter uh, it's given me and i hope it's given you the opportunity to uh, look at these texts in uh, some different ways and uh, sort of consider them from uh, a variety of different angles it's certainly done that uh, for me even Uh, This morning, noting to you as we were beginning our service that uh, in the celebration of uh, All Saints Day on November the 1st, the recognition that there's a whole um, host before the throne right now of those who have died in Christ, who have been made uh, perfect and are in His presence awaiting um, the return of Christ, even acknowledging as we would on October the 31st and November the 1st, the All Hallows' Eve, um, All Saints' Day um, rhythm of the historical church, we usually are not thinking about the resurrection. And the fact is, by thinking about the resurrection, at this moment in uh, the historical calendar of the church actually opens up our eyes to see some of the wonders of what it is that Mark has for us in this uh, marvelous passage of Mark 16, uh, verse 1. And following. Now, as I read this text this week, the thing that really um, stood out to me and ministered to me deeply was thinking about how much the world and reality itself changed the the moment of Christ's resurrection. I want to look at this passage in three ways with you today. I want to look first at the fact that what we see here in Mark 16 is the end of the old world. And what we see in Mark 16 is the beginning of the new world. And when we see the old world fall and the new world emerge, we see that this has life-changing implications for every single one of us here in this room. I want to look at the text in just those ways with you this day. First, the end of the old world world. Now you can see the women, they are eager to get to the tomb. They had heard of the Lord Jesus' passing, we're told through Luke, on Friday evening. They already, Luke tells us, had begun to prepare themselves to make the way to the tomb with the spices, the the aromatic perfumes and fragrances and oils that would uh, be used to anoint the, the death uh, of body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They'd already been thinking about this on Friday as soon as they had heard the news of his passing. But the Sabbath day had come. They, they rested on the Sabbath day according to the Jewish custom. And now on the first day of the week, on Sunday, on the day where we are gathering to meet the resurrected Christ. They are going to the tomb to meet the resurrected Christ in the a.m. hours. Early in the morning, uh, Mark tells us. And there's something of a, of a note that over and over, Mark has been showing us this in the, the, the text. Um, there's something of the note of the fact that time has been passing from one era to another. The very opening of Mark 16 verse 1 says, When the Passover was over. Now, yes, that's a historical marker. The Passover Saturday was uh, complete. But more than that, the old age of all that was attending to the Jewish uh, ritual and, and uh, tradition has, in a very real sense, in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, begun now to pass. It's been fulfilled in Jesus And the rest that the Passover pointed to, that the Sabbath pointed to, of which they've been celebrating now for multiple days, the rest of what is intended by the day, especially the Sabbath day, is now a rest that we as believers know is found in Jesus Christ. He is indeed the Lord of the Sabbath, is He not? He is the one who says to us, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the one who will welcome us one day into the new heavens and the new earth, and He will say to those who are in Christ, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your Master. The Lord Jesus Christ is our rest. And isn't it interesting that now on the, 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 what we call the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, on Sunday, they, they go to the tomb. And now we and the church universal throughout the ages, have gathered on Sunday. And usually on Sunday morning. In mirroring and paralleling what we see here in Mark 16, uh, verse 1, that we are a people who have come to meet the risen Christ. That every Sunday is a, a mini Easter. It's a resurrection day. It's a day of noting that death has been conquered and life is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've come to celebrate. And Mark is telling us to enter in fully into this resurrection era, this new era of redemptive history. The old is passing away, and behold, the new has come. And what we see in this passage is that the women have actually been operating still under the assumptions of the old world. Often in the way that we operate in the assumptions of the old world, they have Uh, Made spices, uh, undoubtedly with perfumes and aromatics and, and oil to take to the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They fully expected to see nothing but a corpse when they showed up at the tomb of the Lord Jesus. They're operating under the assumptions of the old world. They've come to to prepare for it. And and even as they've come to prepare for it, they've had a fear on their way. Their fear is they remind themselves, now wait. They put that very large stone in front of the tomb. How in the world are we going to be able to move that stone out of the way? They're thinking in the assumptions of the old world. They're thinking of those who have lost something when in fact they've gained something. They're thinking, of those, they're thinking about death when in fact they should be thinking about life. They're thinking about their own weakness instead of thinking about the strength that is theirs in Jesus. You see, the old world is passing away. And did you see even the ministry of the old world is passing away? What was the ministry of these women? Well, it was a, it was a ministry of, of spices. Well, let's peel back the layers of that. It was a ministry to care for the dead. To mitigate, if I can put it that way, to mitigate against the effects of decay. That was their ministry. That's why they had begun preparing Friday. That's why they had gotten up early, just as the sun was rising. And they had made their way to the tomb. They wanted to mitigate. They wanted to to work against, to in some way slow the the pattern of decay. To to bed down, as we all know, the, the stench of death. You'll remember that when Jesus had asked for them to open the tomb of Lazarus after four days, he was reminded that um, behold, Lord, his body will stinketh. Now that's the KJV. <laughs> the one I remember. it's two days. He's been in the arid heat of the Middle East. This body is languished in the the tomb. They want to get there quickly because Well, decay will have set in. They're operating under the assumptions of the old world. Do you know, many times we walk through life as if we still live in the old world. We think of our lives in terms of pushing back the inevitable of death. When we're placing that order at the restaurant. And we think about our health. And we get up early and we get on the treadmill, and we think about our, our health. We, when we take that car ride, and we're worried about the drivers in Middle Tennessee, and we're thinking about our health, and, and we are, we're in so many ways, whether putting our hands in the soil and pulling out the weeds that are in our flower beds, or recognizing that we need, as I need to, pressure wash the side of my house right now and think to myself, this is the product of decay, that the second law of thermodynamics is at work. There is a running down that is happening in the midst of the world. And what I must do and what I must throw my energy into is, as best as I can, to mitigate against the decline, the decay, the movement, the inevitable movement towards death. It's the assumptions of the old world. No, I don't mean to say in any way that that's not happening, as if we don't live in a world that moves towards decay and destruction and and, uh, disorder rather than order. We do live in that world, but that world is passing away. It's been passing away for 2,000 years. And a new world has begun. And it began on this morning, Mark 16, at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is not only the end of the old world, this is the beginning of the new world. They needed someone to tell them that that was the case. You can imagine if the women had shown up with their spices um, and there had not been an angel. And they saw that the body of Jesus was gone and the the guards were nowhere to be found. The theories that would have gone through their minds of the indignities that would have been done to the body that they had come to honor, the one that they had come to cherish. Someone has taken and is likely ravaging it, using it in some way, shape or form as as a poster child of what happens to you when you go against Rome or when you stand in the way of the religious establishment, here's what happens to you. This would have been the notions that would have passed through uh, their minds, but instead the Lord never leaves Himself without a witness, does he? He? He knows that our interpretive skills are limited. That when we run across an event, we will draw the wrong conclusion if He doesn't tell us exactly what it is that has happened. And notice the messenger, the angel says to them, He is risen. See it here for yourself. Look at the place where they have laid him. He is no longer there. The women had come bearing spices to anoint the body of Jesus because they were living according to the patterns of the old world. When someone dies, they stay dead. But they didn't know it was the morning of the new world. And they were the first people to see it. The change that would spread throughout every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. The promise of the gospel that would ultimately take hold in consummated form that we still await for at the end of the day. They did not realize that it was the dawn of the kingdom of God. You know, Mark is telling us that. Notice in the text. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen... They went to the tomb. He's telling us that cosmologically. This new day is a new dawn. It is a new world. It's a first day of the week. We are now a people who worship on the first day of the week. We are a people who worship, and our worship begins with rest. It doesn't end with rest. Isn't that interesting? You see, the old world was a world where All week long, the Jews labored to get to Saturday, to get to Sabbath so that they could rest. But when Jesus has come, he has inaugurated rest at the very beginning of the week. Meaning to teach us and to tell us that our our work and our labor in the world is not from exhaustion to rest, but instead we are a restful people before we've even worked. Why are we a restful people before we've even worked? Because Jesus has become for us Total rest. Our soul is at peace. We labor not out of trying to accomplish the end. We labor because the end has been accomplished. That's different. That's fundamentally different. Mark wants us to know that this timing is meaningful. That the stars and the sun and the moon, the whole of the cosmos itself is screaming to us of the new kingdom. I love the way G.K. Chesterton puts it in his marvelous work, The Everlasting Man. If you haven't read it, rectify it soon. Be sure to read it. He says, On the third day, the friends of Christ came at daybreak to the place found at the grave. Empty stone rolled away. And in varying ways, they realized the new wonder. But even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth emerging and the semblance of the gardener God walking again in the garden. Not in the cool of the evening, but at the dawn. I'm told that the grave that is credited to be Christ in the Middle East is situated in a beautiful garden. Appropriate, isn't it? A mirror, as Chesterton is noting to us at the beginning of the the whole of the story of the Bible. The place where God walked and talked with us in the garden. The communion that we shared prior to the fall. And isn't it interesting that in other accounts of the gospel, doesn't Jesus... Well, He speaks directly to Mary in that garden. And He tells her that He has risen... And the meaningfulness of what he is declaring in that moment will only become clear in the days ahead. Well, they'll only become clear fully in eternity, won't they? Now, Chesterton, I think, is noting something that deserves our attention, at least for a few moments, and that is the fact that this resurrection is not just a matter of future importance. Is that how you tend to think of it? I, I admit I fall into that category. I tend to think that one day, this resurrection thing is going to mean a lot to me, um, especially in the day of, well, resurrection. Um, It's going to be really important. And I look uh, toward that day. And there is certain truth that we should indeed look to that day and with expectation in the future, uh, hope for and pray towards and ask Christ, even plead with Christ to return. But the resurrection is actually, according to the Scripture, very important to us now. Now. Not just in the future. You see, this new dawn of this new week as the sun rises in the sky is the beginning of a, of a new present. The kingdom is breaking in. The beginning of the restoration of the world is now. The world as it was always meant to be is now beginning to, to take hold. Uh, the wreckage from the beginning of the fall back in Genesis chapter 3 of suffering, disaster, and And, well, evil and suffering and all that goes alongside it is now being, in this moment, in a very real way, overcome. You see, there's never been a man who's been able to escape death until now. Jesus is that man. And you can imagine that, well, how paradigm-shifting that is. You can imagine that if we had known a man that had come back from the grave, we would uh, well, we'd be doing some medical tests on that man. We'd want to find everything we could find out about his body, um, and we would we would try as best as we can to duplicate his DNA, and we would seek to get to the bottom of how it is that this man uh, did what none of us have been able to do for millennia, and we've been working really hard to overcome this thing called death. And we would search into the biology and we would come up with nothing. Can you imagine the counselors and the therapists speaking to this man? Can you imagine the psychological community and the questions that they would be posing to this man about his origins and uh, his family system and, and structure and uh, how is it that what makes him unique from all of the others? And they would, they would look into his passion. they would consider in terms of his earthly design, there would be nothing nothing significant. Because this power of this resurrection is not biological, though it is physical. The power of this resurrection is not psychological or sociological in nature, though it has effects and implications on all of those things. This resurrection is spiritual in nature. Getting to the very core of the being of what it is that we've been made to be. Now, Jesus is described by the Apostle Paul as being the first fruits of this resurrection. You see, this gets to the present implications. The first fruits. Now, when you hear first fruits, as most of you are farmers, I know, you know that that means that the beginning of the harvest is showing up, right? You've got the, you've got the beginning part of the harvest is, is happening. It's, it's a kind of pledge. It's a kind of proof. Listen, I've... You know, I have my little raised garden. I plucked my, don't you pluck? No, you don't really pluck, you pick, don't you? I I picked my tomatoes. See, I'm such a farmer, as you can tell. Uh, When I picked my tomatoes, the original, the first tomatoes, then you go, like, look, look at what, you know, look at what I've done. That's what you think in your mind. You're like, you didn't really do anything. God did all of that. But nevertheless, you you take it and you're like, look at what what I've done. And then it's a pledge of what? More to come. More to come. Jesus is described as the first fruits of the harvest. See, have you been thinking of the resurrection as something that's future? You see, the Bible considers it as something that's underway. The first fruits have already been picked. The Lord Jesus Christ is our first fruits. And do you know spiritually what's been happening is the spreading of this harvest with laborers in the message of the gospel have been going forth to every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation. It's been going forth even to Middle Tennessee, this far away and strange land. The gospel has come here and apparently there are people Who gather, who believe the truth of who Christ is and have known His resurrection power. They know that they've been raised with Christ. They know that they're seated with Him in the heavenly places. They know that His power is their power by virtue of the Holy Spirit. They know and anticipate Growing into the likeness of who Jesus is by the power of that Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. You see, this resurrection is not just future. This resurrection is abiding within you. It is the very life that you live as one who names the name of Christ. One who has trusted in Him alone for your salvation as He is offered in the gospel. This resurrection is now. Think of the implications that this has for us. What is the resurrection in terms of its practical use to us even right now? Well, I can tell you this. Number one, it assures us that we are forgiven of our sin. It assures us that we are forgiven of our sin. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that if Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sin. That's what he says. But Christ has been raised. Therefore, we are not in our sin. Now, I love the way one of my professors in seminary would put it. He said, you know, the resurrection works very much like a, a receipt. You know, when you purchase something at the store, you, you, you get a receipt, don't you? It, it's, it's, your, it, it's your proof. It's your proof you're not stealing, right? That you have, you have actually bought these things. if someone were to accuse you, that you stole these things, you'd just whip out that receipt and you would show them, "No, I, I paid filthy lucre for this thing, like this, that I used money in order to get this thing. That's what you would tell them. And that receipt means that it's paid for. Do you see the resurrection is that? You see, if Jesus had paid for your sins on the cross and he would never have raised again from the dead, what assurance would you have that he's really paid it in full? Everybody goes to the grave and doesn't get up. What makes him unique then? How would that give you encouragement or confidence that your sin has really been paid for? No, that is the manifestation. Because the wage, the payment for sin is death. He paid the penalty for the sin, but then notice the grave could not hold him. It released him. It released him to show you that the penalty for sin has been completely assuaged. We have nothing to fear, those of you who have trusted in Christ. Your record is now clear. He has paid the record. He's paid it in full. In fact, there's no no way that the Lord could charge you more for what Christ has already paid. That would be unjust. And our God is never unjust. He can't double charge you for something that's already been paid. The assurance that comes to us that our sins are forgiven in the resurrection is hopefully, even in this moment, as you see it, a comfort to your soul. What an important doctrine. But secondly, the resurrection provides for us the power to follow Christ. This is right now. The power to follow Christ. You know, the. Probably the, the most well-known metaphor for salvation in the Scripture is the metaphor of being born again. It's the language that Jesus uses with Nicodemus in John 3. To be born again or to be, to be born anew. In other words, you need a whole new life than the one that you have, Nicodemus. How does that new life come? Well, it comes by virtue of the resurrection. Paul writes in Romans 8.11, which we read just a little bit earlier, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Now, just contemplate this for a minute, friends. The Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is inside of you. What an incredible inducement of power and encouragement towards following Christ in obedience to His commands that we might change and overcome the weaknesses of sin and grow into righteousness increasingly, that which has already been gifted to us in Jesus. How much more because we have the Spirit who dwells within us. Now, I hear you. I I hear the the objection, well, I I keep sinning, I I keep struggling, and there's no way that I'm going to overcome sin. It just is a part of this, this life, this mortal body of which I am in. Yes, the old world is still with us, though it's dying. But the new world has emerged. And the new world is inside of you through the power of the Spirit. I wonder if you believe that. Sometimes our lack of growth in grace is because when we look at the challenge of obedience before us, we say to ourselves, "Oh, there's no way I can do that. I'm so weak. I'm so helpless. I'm so unable. I'm so powerless. Yes, I know. Why are you looking at you? The Spirit is in you, though. God is in you. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, do you not think He could help? Could he help you overcome sin? Maybe if you commune with him. Maybe if you reflected, maybe if you prayed, maybe if you considered him. Might the power of the Holy Spirit have sway in your heart and life? The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Paul says. An incredible encouragement. That not only do we have the assurance that our sins are forgiven, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us that draws us into followership of Christ. We have a phrase here at Cornerstone that we use in case you're hearing this, you're hearing the challenge of growth and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but, yeah, but, I I know, we stumble forward is the way that we put it. We stumble forward, we know that. It's not the perfection of your life as we say, but the direction of your life. It's the Spirit who will do the heavy lifting, though, my friends. And I must say, sometimes we're too busy looking at ourselves to recognize the power of the Spirit is within us. I want you to see, thirdly, that the resurrection presently commissions you to a meaningful calling. Commissions you. What do I mean by that? Well, if you'll notice here in Mark 16, um, the angel announces, right, the news. He is risen. Look, this is where they laid him. He is not Here, and then what does the angel immediately do to the two women who are there, the three women who are there? He commissions them. Now go, go, and tell all the disciples and Peter what has happened. Do you see the announcement of the resurrection is what commissions us to the calling of mission. These women had come to the tomb with a calling... To bring spices to a dead body. And they left being missionaries to a living Savior. That's what happened in the resurrection. Their calling was a calling when they got to the grave of bedding down the scent of mortality. The rest of their lives is a meaningful calling of making known the aroma of life. To those who embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how different that is. You see, the resurrection means that you have a story to tell, you have a message to share. There is a powerful gospel that a Savior has come back from the world and He saves all of those who trust in Him alone for their salvation. You have neighbors who are dying, we have family members who are passing away. This commissions us to a calling. That we have a resurrection that provides for us a meaningful declaration and announcement that can change lives, literally turn the world upside down. But fourthly and finally, one of the ways that we see the resurrection manifested presently in our life and its ministry displayed is it gives us confidence in the face of death. You know, friends, we have come through the last 18 months to 24 months with, well, death at every turn, haven't we? Who among us in this room don't know someone who's not died recently? It's been sobering. It's been clarifying. Clarifying to the fragility of human condition. And clarifying to the need of our hour is one of eternal importance. You know, I said to the early service, I've thought more about my health in the last um, 18 months, 24 months, than maybe at any point in my life. And some of you are saying, well, that's not saying much. I mean, look at you, right? I I deserve that. Um, Okay, but, all right, that aside, that aside. Haven't that been true of you two? You've been thinking more about that waistline. You've been thinking more about what you ordered at the restaurant. You've been thinking more about, I need to get in the gym. I have taken more um, D3 and vitamin B12. um, Like, I don't know how much, right? Like, probably an unhealthy amount I've taken (laughs) over the course of the the last time. Uh, You know, I have concerns for health. Has it caused you to get ready spiritually, though? I don't care how good your immune system is today. Do you know in a few generations, none of us will be in this room. And someone else will be preaching. On an all saints day. And they will be remembering you and me who have died in Christ and have gone on to be with the Lord and await the day of His return should He tarry. Are you ready to face death with confidence? Are you living by the light of eternity? Or has the fears of the world so encroached that it has snuffed out the powerful work, the meaningfulness of the calling of the gospel in your life. Do You see, he is calling us to deeper and better things, to the things that matter, to the riches of heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. He's calling those of you who have been raised with Christ to seek the things that are above. That's what he's calling us to. As we consider with sobriety the reality of our time, the mortality of our time is is actually better than most. And look at how fragile we are. Praise God for a Savior whose tomb is empty. Because should He tarry, ours will not be. Until he comes. Father in heaven, we would ask now that the truth of the resurrection and its power and the grace of the gospel would strike us afresh as we walk by its light. Give to us this life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.